The Peter Switzer Show is brought to you by The Switzer Report. Sign up today at switzerreport.com.au. Welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this is our best of collection. And uh, this day, this week, we're looking at the best of retail. We've got Russell Kogan of Kogan.com.au. We've got Richard Murray of JB Hi-Fi and Jerry Harvey. What a collection of great Australian retailers. Let's kick off with Russell Kogan. For people who don't know much about the origins um, and, and I do because, you know, we, we have talked about when you, when you first kicked off, what was the origins of Kogan? Where did you see the, the opportunity and how did you get it off the ground? So the business started early in 2006 and uh, it was, I was in a corporate job earning decent money, wanting to always buy the latest tech and uh, you know, been a computer geek from a from a young age, and always wanted the latest gadgets. And I went to buy a big screen TV. They were really expensive in all the stores, and uh, I thought, well, let me try and import one out of Asia, which is where they're made. And then I saw this opportunity where a product that I could land in Australia for around a thousand dollars was selling in the big name stores for about four thousand dollars at the time. And then I thought back to uh, a semester that I did studying abroad in the US and the rise of online retail there. And I thought, this is a perfect product for e-commerce. This is a perfect product for uh, you know, delivering uh, around the country because you've got, you've got this uh, product that's worth a lot of money in a fairly small box and you can quite easily uh, get it delivered to customers. So Kogan.com was born at that time with a direct-to-consumer online business model with uh, with just uh, two products at the time. Okay. So how hard was it for a, you know, a bloke in Melbourne uh, who thought, I'd like to create effectively Kogan TVs um, and source them in China and get them over here and we won't worry about the actual retailing of it now, but just to actually get access to a whole bunch of TVs and having your name, Kogan, stamped on it. How hard was that? Well, there were a lot of challenges from very early on in the business. So even from placing the order with the initial uh, factory. So I'd researched all of these factories, chosen the best one to work with, and when I went to place an order, they told me that they're not interested in my order because it was too small. I only wanted to order 80 TVs at the time, and they had to set up a production run for it. And, uh, you know, they're more interested in orders of the tens or hundreds of thousands of units. So, you know, it was challenging from that point. I, I actually ended up redoing all of their user manuals, redoing all of their marketing material and sending it back to that factory and saying, hey, look, you might not make a lot of money from this small order that I want to place, but uh, there's other ways in which I can add value to this relationship. And I showed them all the work that I did for them. They said, thank you very much, gave me an even better price and accepted my small order. Yeah. Then there were other challenges like 
funding and finance. So speaking to a few business leaders who, who weren't interested, they told me online retailers for books and CDs and no one's ever going to buy a TV without seeing it first. So I actually went and got a few credit cards and convinced a few friends to get credit cards and lend me the money and then uh, went and pre-sold a few TVs to fund the business. So Kogan.com actually started with $0 in the bank account. And, and so what was the price differential you took to market like to, to get some friends to stump up money for TVs that you, know, you said you were going to deliver? What, what was the price differential? Yeah, well, look, a lot of these friends had seen me um, and how I operate from a very young age, so they were happy to hand the money over. But uh, the differential was actually not fixed because one of the other quirky things I did when I started the business was I sold the TVs at one cent, no reserve on eBay. Because my view was that as long as there's two people in Australia who want an LCD TV, it'll get the natural market price. And it actually caused a bit of a stir because I did this because all these places were saying, look, there's this guy selling TVs from one cent no reserve. If you bid $1 and you're the highest bidder, you'll actually get to take home a 40-inch LCD TV. Mm. The truth of the matter was that it's a very deep market. There's a lot of demand and every single TV had hundreds of bids and generating a lot of attention for the brand and for the method. And uh, I was... I was getting very good prices for the TV. Yeah, yeah, Ruslan, uh, I, you know, considering that it was probably at least ten years ago we first did an interview, I can't remember, but I think even at that time you had someone who you had either in house or you hired who was a PR person because PR has been a really important part of your success story, hasn't it? Well, I realised very early on with the company that. Uh, you know, getting attention for a brand is critical. And we are, a, we are a challenger brand. We're a fighter brand. And we need to be out there telling our story because we were competing in some of the most competitive industries out there. We were in consumer electronics. We were making LCD TVs and we were in retail. These are cutthroat industries where I was competing with lots of companies with very deep pockets. So, uh, I realized from very early on in the business that in the same way that I need to get attention for this brand, journalists need content. And, uh, you know, we're able to, like every other relationship in the business, create a win-win where we were exchanging content for attention. And, uh, and it was working and it was exactly what we needed to do at that stage of the business. Okay, so w one of the, the, the greatest exponents of what you have done uh, was, of course, John Simon and Aussie Home Loans. Um, and I can remember the very first time we received a fax to the Triple M newsroom in the early 1990s. A fax came through about this unknown business called Aussie Home Loans that was offering home loans 2% cheaper than everybody else. And I remember the news director, David White, said to me, because I was their business and finance commentator, they said, so it's, you know, should we actually give this business any you know, publicity because, you know, 2% uh, cheaper interest rates, you know, there was no competition in those days. And I said, well, he's giving people money. He's not taking their money. So the very worst, if he goes broke, someone will end up back in, a, a, you know, Commonwealth Bank or Westpac, they'll buy his book. So I guess it's not a risky thing. But he certainly 
learnt how to, you know, tap into the media. Did you learn from some of the legends of business uh, yourself when you started, you know, setting out the the goal of growing Kogan? Well, it was uh, it was actually not a legend of business. It was some rap music that I had listened to uh, in high school and in college. It was from Eminem, <laughs> yeah. where. I remember, you know, listening to a, a lot of Eminem songs and he was uploading these disses that he had with a guy called Ja Rule. And, you know, Ja Rule would upload something saying something bad about Eminem, then Eminem would respond, then yeah. Ja Rule would respond. It's a real battle, wasn't and, it? Yeah. yeah, they had this battle going on. And then I remember Eminem ending the battle by saying, I'm not going to respond anymore because I've sold you more records than you could ever sell yourself. <laughs> so uh, he he did that, and I thought, you know what? That's true. I'd never heard of Ja Rule before all of this. And then in the very early days of the business, I actually uh, I thought, well, every challenger brand needs to have an enemy, and we need to tell our story. And I was uh, filming a Today Tonight uh, episode about our TV and whenever the uh, cameras was, were off, I was telling them, I was like, well, if Jerry Harvey saw these prices, he would go nuts. If you show these to him, oh, my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I watch, I'm watching that episode later that night, and they did find Jerry, and they showed him the prices, and here he was standing in the middle of one of his stores, half shaking, saying, oh, they're not that much cheaper than ours. They're only a couple of hundred bucks cheaper on this one. Um, and it was perfect, Todd. Um, you know, he's a business person that I respect a lot. And as any retailer in Australia would, he's transformed the retail landscape and he's achieved so much. Mm. But, yeah, I did learn a trick or two off Eminem and used it on Jerry. Have you ever sent him a Christmas card thanking him for his um, support? No, not yet. We've still got a long way to go, you know. It's, uh, even even with all of our growth and what we've achieved, it's still tiny in comparison to what some of the amazing retailers in Australia like Jerry Harvey have achieved. We are, we are a business that is uh, a few percent of online retail in Australia, and online retail is about 8 or 9% of overall retail. So we're roughly 0.3% of overall retail in Australia. So while we think we'll get much bigger as more retail shifts to online and we'll gain market share online because we're very good at what we do in that space, you know, what we have achieved so far still pales in comparison to what some of our great retailers over the last few decades have achieved. Well, Russell, I'm surprised you've given me a headline, Russell Kogan at Myers, Jerry Harvey. That's going to be a, a very good headline. <laughs> and I know well, Jer- look, it's, n- n- numbers speak for themselves, so <laughs> you know you can't you can't dispute that. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Um, and you know, I, I know Jerry is smart enough to realise you were using him to to get the attention. But the reality is, you 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 have actually delivered on your promise, and the share price is reflecting that as well. Uh, along the way, you, you have copped criticism. You have copped uh, people saying, "Oh, they'll never do it," and whatever. What was it like? Because there, there are times when the share price hasn't you know made you feel fantastic. How have you got through those tough times, Russell? Well, a lot of that drives us because we are in a very competitive space and 
what we do is watched by a lot of people. And no matter what we do, uh, there'll be critics. You know, if we make a lot of money, there'll be someone saying that, oh, why didn't they reinvest more in growth? If you reinvest in growth and make a little bit less money, someone will be saying, oh, why didn't they make enough money? Uh, no matter what you do as a public company, you're always going to have critics. And that's part and parcel. We love that. We love the debate. We love the scrutiny. And we love the fact that we're in such competitive industries that makes us jump out of bed in the morning. So, look, it's not for everyone. You've got to ensure that that sort of stuff drives you and, you know, that you can live with the distractions and you know how to put your blinkers on and be focused on what's important and how to deliver value for your customers. Uh, but, you know, it's all part of the game. All right. So one of the things I was surprised at, uh, which you've done very well, is that you've introduced innovation, which n- not necessarily is actually selling products. Um, how has that gone in terms of driving their revenue and explaining the success of the share price? Well, the share price is something we try not to look at. Yeah, I know. That makes you sound like a conventional CEO, but the reality is it's always nice if it's heading in the right direction. Oh, and that's our job. Our job is to deliver long-term shareholder value. But, um, you know, a lot of the times the thing with a share price is when a share price moves, it's nothing to do with the work you did in the prior week or month. Mm. It's due to work that happened several years ago in a business. So we've been focused on ensuring that we execute our long-term strategy, that we've got a very uh, strong attention to the various risks across the business and, you know, mitigating risks where we can, creating diversified revenue streams, creating, uh, you know, a supply chain that uh, isn't too concentrated in any one area and uh, is also a diverse supply chain. And that's been critical to the success of our business. So even if you look at uh, the last few months, we achieved what we achieved with one hand tied behind our back because there was a lot of disruptions out of China when it came to products because after the Chinese New Year, many factories didn't come back to work for one to two months uh, due to coronavirus. In our supply chain, we've obviously got our private label products where we control the supply chain end-to-end. We work with third-party brands, but then we've also got marketplace where we allow sellers to sell to our platform. Now, in, in the disruptive environment that we've had, it means that if any products were missing out of uh, any of those divisions or any of those categories, they might be missing from one of our supply chains, but the other two would have it. So, you know, concentrating on this innovation and ensuring that we're building a supply chain from scratch since 2006, rather than operating a supply chain the way they've operated for decades, has been very important to our business. Mm. But look, the thing is, you're going to have to pick me up on here. I haven't done enough research, which annoys me when I think about it. But you got into things like um, telephone plans and stuff like that, haven't you? And my question, when I saw you get into those sorts of different things, and correct me if you're not in that, but you're in some unusual things, not just selling products. And I thought to myself, he must be leveraging off the fact he's got a loyal tribe of followers who have benefited from hanging out with Kogan uh, and, and Kogan.com and therefore he thinks well if, if people trust me to sell TVs well they'll, they'll trust me to sell other things is that true? Is, is that how it's worked out? 
you're 100% spot on. So our thinking with our new verticals, and we've got them now across lots of industries. So we do have Kogan Mobile, as you point out, mm-hmm. where uh, we've partnered with Vodafone to sell mobile plans. We also sell NBN Internet uh, in a partnership with Vodafone. We've got home insurance, content insurance, car insurance, Kogan credit cards we have now as well in a partnership with Citibank. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we've got lo- lots of other verticals as well. And our thinking there is that we've got this huge stream of traffic, a recognized and trusted brand online. And uh, there's a lot of service providers and infrastructure owners out there that uh, want customer acquisition. And they've built out their service or they've built out their infrastructure and they need to onboard customers to help them pay off their assets. And marketing and customer acquisition in these industries is very expensive. So we partner with them and we say, look, acquiring customers for you is very expensive. You want to grow your customer base. We have this huge customer base and stream of traffic on our site that trust our brand. Let's partner. But rather than spend money on marketing, let's reinvest that money into the price point of the product. Yeah. So we can ensure that we've got the cheapest mobile plans or internet connection or home insurance or travel insurance out there. Mm. And it's a win-win-win for everyone. It's a win for our customers. They get an incredible deal. A win for our partners because they get to acquire lots of customers and a win for our shareholders as well. So that's how we've structured those divisions. Yeah, and I guess the bottom line is you have to make sure you patrol the um, the the new entry onto your platform to make sure they don't betray your brand. Yeah, so that's a that's the biggest risk with that business model. Our brand is on the line, so as far as the customer's concerned, their Kogan mobile network has to work and their Kogan internet has to work. So we have a very strict set of SLAs and service requirements with our providers to ensure that while they've done the underlying service, that our customers are treated very well. What's what's the future? What are you going to be getting into going forward? Well, you know, we sort of we got a good look at the future recently, where e-commerce accelerated a few years within the space of a few months, and I think that that's a trend that we're going to see, and there's going to be a lot of competition out there for who can serve e-commerce customers better. Because what we're seeing now is traditionally the online customer used to be the price hunter. They were the customer who looked around, saw a product somewhere for 80 bucks, somewhere else for 88, found a place they've never heard of that had it for 87, and they'd buy it from that place because it's the cheapest price. Now we're seeing the rise of the convenience customer, and that's the mass market in e-commerce. There's the people that don't really care if it's $85, $87 or $90. They just want to click a few times, have a beautiful experience online and have it arrive at their door the next day. Mm. So there's a lot of investment we're doing in building out our logistics network. We now have 15 distribution centers. We have items located closer to the customer all over Australia. That in turn speeds up our delivery to the customer, but also makes it cheaper. And, uh, you know, these sort of investments into the uh, e-commerce ecosystem that will improve the customer experience and make life better for the convenient customer. That's going to be the where the battle is won over the next 
five to ten years. And so in, in many ways, you're a real head-to-head fighter, competitor with Amazon Prime. Well, yeah, Amazon is a is a marketplace business uh, that you know launched a few years ago. The big player in that space is eBay. Mm. What a lot of people don't realise is that eBay has been doing an incredible job in Australia. Mm. They are they are doing so well, and part of the reason is that in the US, eBay is seen as uh, the place you go to sell your secondhand iPhone. Whereas in Australia, eBay for 25 years has been the go-to marketplace for brand new buy-it-now items with lots of the major retailers around the country uh, listing on their platform. So uh, in our view, we you know, really look up to eBay and, and uh, you know, they've done a lot of good things. And yes, there's going to be a lot of competition in this space and the customer's going to benefit. Have you changed, Kogan? Uh, you know, when I first met you, you were... A smart-ass but likable young bloke with a big dream. Have you? Ch- <laughs> I say that in the nicest possible way. You know that. Yeah. But you were, you were, you, you were teasing Jerry Harvey and whatever. So it's a pretty fair, fair call. Have you changed in any way? Oh well, look, I definitely have a bit less hair than when I last saw <laughs> you, and a few extra grey hairs. Right. Uh, so you know, business, the business world makes you learn very quickly and makes you adapt very quickly. So. Uh, certainly, a lot of stuff hasn't changed. You know, my friends haven't changed, and the things that I love doing haven't changed. Uh, but from a business environment, I'd like to think that I'm a better business person today than I was yesterday. Yeah, you certainly have uh, matured. I can hear that. Finally, mate, the the resources or the books or the inspirations that have you know kept you you know heading in the right direction and has kept you committed. You know, when there were challenges along the way. Yeah, I'd have to say my parents because they're the ones that have had the biggest impact on my life. They're the ones I know the most. And seeing them arrive in Australia with $90 in their pocket in 1989, work three or four jobs each, uh, you know, studying English at the same time, never missing a parent-teacher interview, uh, explaining the importance of education, um, and you know, making us study very hard, both me and my sister. Mm. They're the they're the most inspirational things that you know a child can be exposed to. So, seeing that work ethic and that determination from a young age, mm. I think has taught me the best business skills. Even though you know, I don't really value my parents' business skills because they grew up in a communist society. So, communism doesn't teach you too much about business. So, you know, it's those really important life skills that enable me to work 100 hours a week, that enable me to always think outside the box and think, how can I solve this problem or what's the appropriate level of risk to be taking here and so on. So they they taught me a lot of the most important things in life from first principles rather than from uh, theoretical business skills. Yeah, well, I think the bottom line is that uh – Really good businesses are generally run by very good people and obviously your parents have been very good role models in that respect. And I've got to say to you, I, I wrote a, a story on the weekend uh, after listening some to some old Zig Ziglar tapes and uh, it made me think about uh, both Mark Burris and John Simon. When I asked them who were their inspirations, they both said their parents. So you know, you're, in the, you're in the same class as Burris and Simon when it comes to that kind of thing. 
Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. They're the people that have the most impact over your nurturing and upbringing. And, you know, just even to take it one step further and you think about what does it take to run a business, uh, it's the same as what it takes to be an immigrant. And that's what I saw my parents go through in my, in my formative years because you've got to drop everything you've got, take a massive risk, travel into the unknown and work your butt off for a potential benefit that might not even be there. Yeah. So, and it's a strange, um, strange world as well, isn't it, Russell? The business world is a strange world. Well, definitely. It changes every day. Like even look at what's happened in the last few months. Mm. Uh, there was, you know, I'd be in conference calls or meetings with people going, hey, remember we met two weeks ago. This, like, how much has changed since then? Yeah. Uh, it's a dynamic environment. And that's why also, you know, what Charles Darwin said about evolution applies a lot in business where, you know, it's not the uh, strongest that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. So you've got to constantly watch what's going on around you. If fully aware of the marketplace and day in, day out, be pursuing whatever creates a better experience for your customers. That was Russell and Kogan. Now, meet the CEO of JB Hi-Fi, Richard Murray. I just want to get to the core of, you know, what you've learnt business-wise during 2020. Well, I... I think as most business people say, their risk register never had a global <laughs> pandemic on it. So I'm, I'm happy to put my hand up there and say, uh, we didn't have that one on the risk register. But then also, it does remind me that when federal governments stimulate the economy, it is generally good for retail and it hasn't been, and it has been good for JB. So I think we, we should start out by acknowledging, and you and I are talking about some restaurants in Melbourne earlier, you know, the hospitality sector, um, the travel sector is doing it particularly tough and, and we certainly feel for them. I guess the reality for me is that I'm here to make sure that JB um, looks after its customers and, and staff and, and delivers to its shareholders. Mm. And certainly we have had a period of uh, elevated sales across what I'd say are three sort of key periods. The, you know, there was the fridges and freezers to start with when anyone was thinking about how are they going to store food at home. Mm. Then people were learning and working from home. So all the IT accessories, computers, and then as we had a sustained period in our homes, people started upgrading their TVs, et cetera. Mm. And it seems to me that you uh, you can well remember this, and I remember you know, talking to you about it at the time, that there was two or three years ago, Amazon was going to come and eat your lunch and the online world was going to be a challenge to you and Harvey Norman and all that sort of stuff. But has your online offering proved you know, um, to be of a, of a a very good caliber? We have made a sustained investment on online. And, and as you know, we're not one to sort of get too lost in uh, in, in cliches, but it, it, we have just done what we normally do, which is we've picked a few things we want to do well, and we've just chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. Mm -hmm. And with online, we launched, a, so we're using a company out of Canada called Shopify. They're a global sort of e-commerce platform. And so they, I, I say they're like our builders. They built the platform and we sit our store on top of it. And that has enabled us to achieve in two years what I worried might take us five years if we built it from scratch. Mm. And so I actually don't want to think about the scenario we went through this pandemic with the old website because I think it would have broke, but it would have broken. Mm. And so our partnership with Shopify has been really important. The internal marketing IT teams have worked their tushes off. 
And, but, but I think where people get a bit lost with online sometimes is just not thinking just about the website because that's obviously for customers come in store. 80% of those customers start their journey online anyway. So it's important we have a good website for our bricks and mortar customers. But on top of that, it's in what I think we've done really well is the delivery choices. So, you know, we when we got went into lockdown in March in Melbourne, we currently have 75 SUVs on the road driven by our staff doing basic, we call it store to door at JB and express at the good guys. And we are our own staff where our stores have been dark, not open to customers are delivering. So if you order by two o'clock, you will get it that afternoon. Mm. And at one stage we were doing it for $5 when we were really keen to test ourselves. Mm. Um, that's probably a bit too good to be true in the, in the real world, but mm. under a pandemic, you're happy to test and learn. So I have never received feedback as I have recently from friends on on JB Store to Door and Good Guys Express. Yeah. It's, that's been awesome. Well, I guess, um, I'm kind of laughing to myself because whenever I go into a JB Hi-Fi store, you know, your staff looks really cool and groovy, you know, tattoos, earrings, all that sort of stuff. And they're, and, and they're always dressed in a cool and groovy way. And they could become delivery people as well. Well, you know, what I noticed with the staff is, so the one thing I, you know, we talk so much, you you and I talk about it a lot, but, you know, how do we talk about valuing our people if we stand them down during Mm. the pandemic? Um, So we we wanted to do anything to keep the team employed. Mm. And if that meant they're delivery drivers for a period while we get through this crazy time and we're using external contractors a bit less, um, we actually thought the external contractors would break. I think Toll and Australia Post, all things considered, have actually done a pretty jolly good job. But that said, there's no, you cannot replace a staff member arriving at your home. People love our JB Hi-Fi staff member turning up. Mm. We've got amazing feedback. Yeah. Um, obviously, you've created new customers over this period. People, and I know people who've, I think, in fact, um, Bernard Salt said he'd never bought anything online until he was forced to do it, being a locked-up Melbourne guy. Um, so you, obviously you've created new customers. How, how well do you think you'll keep those customers? How easy will it be to keep those customers? I think that's one thing that traditionally bricks and mortar does pretty well relative to online. I think people are not that loyal sometimes online but I think the power of bricks and mortar and online. So what we know with online, people have a lot of concerns about returns and all that stuff that happens outside the purchase. So normally when, when you buy something, you get it, it turns up. What, what I think JB prides itself and the good guys on is when something breaks or you have an issue with there, we've got your back as a customer. And so what sometimes with online purchases, people don't feel as confident that it's going to get sorted. So the power of I've bought it online, but I can take it back to store. Um, has been re- we actually spun up returns online during the pan- during COVID, which we're really pleased with. So I think it's the power of both. There's no doubt we've got new customers, but I think being able to shop with us anywhere, and in fact nowadays you can call us and we'll send you a. You say I don't really know what TV I want. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in that. A salesperson will help you over the phone and then send you a link, and you can do click and collect. Or home delivery. So we've even we're even back to serving people over the phone. Mm. All right. So let's understand you've increased your customer base, but also your rivals have probably grown the stats here. Like you know, Kogan's obviously done well over this period, and I don't know whether they have or not. But you would presume Amazon's even done well. Is there a strategy to make sure that over time you you beat them up? I know you you wouldn't actually admit to it but end of the day 
their rivals. Is there a strategy to, to make sure you come out on top on the online world? We've tended to hold ourselves to a very high standard internally. So I, I, while there was no doubt when we had our friends turning up from the US, we did a lot of work and we went and visited retailers in the US. We visited our, our peer groups, companies in London and Paris. You know, we, 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 we learned everything we could about our competitor turning up in Australia and we had our, we were absolutely ready for that competition. At the same time, I think your point, real staff talking to real customers, whether they want to shop online or in store is really powerful. And I think a lot of people shop online with JB and they know that behind the, behind that online is a real person and they value that connection with our staff and it's very authentic. Um, and we continue to think the power of both will stand us in good stead against online competition, which is a bit not always, um, it's a bit one directional, right? There's nobody there. There's just the website. Okay. Because you're a chartered accountant and gee, you don't look like one, you look like a normal person at this point in time, Richard, well done you. Um, you know, when your share price was around the 30s, uh, 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 the, inexplicably the market went against you and you dropped down to the low 20s and now you're ripped into the 40s. I, I must admit, I haven't checked you lately. Where, where are you nowadays? I think we're about $48. Yes, I thought around, around 50 So my question is, and I know this is not your job to, to explain what the share price might do, but you've done it before, you defied your critics, and you've grown the business. What's going to be the big strategy going forward so we eventually see, well, let me pick a price, not you, $60. How, how do you, what, what's going to be JB Hi-Fi's innovative strategy going forward? So, I mean, you and I could get lost in price-to-earnings ratios. Don't I guess do that. Just focus on how do I grow the profitability of the business over yep. the medium term and we'll, we assume the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. I think about that, it is one, we absolutely have to do everything in the eye of the customer. Yeah. Um, and, and so we can't, and, but that can't be a blank check. So we do have, it, while we want to delight customers every day, we need to do that in a financially sensible way. So we work hard with suppliers to make sure that we've got great promotions. We spend uh, a lot less on advertising than most of our competitors, which means we can make sure our prices stay low. But fundamentally, and one of the things I'm really proud of is, we actually have a pretty um, re relatively generous internal reward program for the staff. And I think that means we retain the, the A team for our customers because they want to be served by knowledgeable people. And so if we keep, we're very focused, you know, keep look after your staff, they'll look after your customers and that, that'll look after your shareholders. Mm. What, you know, your culture is um, one of your strongest assets. Was it there when you turned up or do you, do you pat yourself on the back for what you've created culture-wise? That's a hard question, but... Uh, it, I, I certainly, it's not. I, I think I could be responsible for breaking it if I wasn't careful. Mm. So I, I often say to the team, it's going to be really hard to put it back together if we break it. Mm. So sometimes you actually don't know exactly what we do well. We do, it's empowered. It's authentic. Anybody can walk into my office. There's people in the organisation that really don't know what a CEO does, and I'm really cool with that. As mm. long as they look after the customers, then they've got a really happy CEO, even if they don't really know what that person does. So we're pretty flat. We're pretty authentic. I think when it comes to culture, it's very hard to build 
And sometimes you don't always know the component ingredients that got you there, but it's really clear what you could do to damage it. And it's about, you know, we're, we're very um, careful when we give feedback with our team. Often that's actually our fault. You know, if, a, if 200 stores can't get it right, it's pretty clear support office didn't get it right dishing it down to the stores. So our job as a support office, as an executive team, is to make sure when the stores and, um, and the team are going to market and serving customers, that we make that as simple and efficient and effective and as authentic as possible. Mm. Do you do you have a um, a channel through which you get feedback from your staff? Because let's face it, you know they often have a different view of the world. Oh well, one I get into stores, which is always the best feedback because mm. you know, you're there having a conversation. Um, I get emails, I get texts. Um, we have Yammer, which is sort of an internal social media channel. Um, and I know that the support office team considers it mission critical getting out to stores because often the brainwave we have at support office can be a good idea in conceptually, but you need the store team's input. Um, I remember one day, this is a simple example. We sent out a form, we printed 8,000 forms and there was a typo, which is not a great outcome. Mm. And we called the store and I remember sitting on the call and we said, oh, Jill at the store, we've, we've made this mistake. How do you think we'll fix it? She goes, I'll just cross it out and send it back when I reprocess the form. So sometimes you can get lost mm. or you just cross out the wrong word. What's the future of retail? Obviously, things are, are changing as, as a consequence of the coronavirus. It's probably sped up a lot of changes. What's going to happen to retail Um shopping centres and stuff like that. What do you think is going to happen, Richard? Well, what you I certainly think that, I mean, we've got a lot of partners that are shopping centres that are very important to us. So I want to be sort of careful how I say this. Yeah. The harsh reality is some of the rents in shopping centres are, are hard for retailers to sustain and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'll leave others to judge it, but I certainly think for a lot of smaller retailers, those rents are not particularly sustainable. Uh, the, for, for us, I think as a, ma a mini major, we obviously uh, attract a lot of traffic to a shopping centre, so we get a reasonably competitive rent. But I don't think most retailers at the moment think they'll have more stores in the future. Now, the argument for us is, do you have less bigger stores? Do you have less smaller stores? Or do you say, you know, I can get more infill stores? But the reality is I'm absolutely convinced JB and the good guys across Australia will have circa 300 stores mm. because they enable so many things. They not just customers, you know, how we delighted customers during a pandemic because we have 200, 300 warehouses across the country that we can deliver from and, you know, are within about 11 kilometres of most customers. Whereas if we had one warehouse in Melbourne and one warehouse in Sydney, it's just harder. I'm not mm. saying it's wrong, it's just harder. So, so how many stores do you have across those two businesses? So JB has a couple of hundred and Good Guys has about 100. So you're not planning on opening any new ones. You're just going to try and increase, the, the I guess, the, the footprint reach of each store? Well, no, what I'm, I'm saying, so I actually see a point where we will have, so we for a JB store, it's about 1,300 square metres. Today, we think that's about right. I know for the good guys, we're sometimes thinking, could we take a little bit more spot? So originally when we bought the good guys, we were probably planning to roll out more stores. We haven't done a lot of new stores, but we think some of the, their stores are a bit smaller and we would over time relocate them 
within the same area, but we might try and find a bigger site mm. where we can show, you know, customers come to both brands wanting the full range of products and we it's critical that we display that. All right, last question, Richard. Um, you've been running Good Guy, uh, uh, JB Hi-Fi for how long now? Six years. Six years. What have you learned about leading people? Because, you know, let's face it, as an accountant, I don't want to bag accountants. I love accountants. You know, being an economist, you know, we're like entertaining accountants. But, you know, you, I say it with, with all deepest respect, but leadership isn't a natural thing that you learn at university when you become an accountant. What have you learned about leading people, particularly in retail? Well, the good, the one thing you know, so I was previously at Deloitte, um, you know, and it's obviously there, there's a fairly defined career path. Mm. In retail, there's a lot of real people with a lot of different objectives. It's a very broad church and you need to love that. Um, you need to love that sometimes people don't actually know you're the CEO and they actually probably don't really care and mm. you need to be okay with it because you, you're <laughs> looking for people to make you feel good. They're just trying to serve customers over there and if you could do something to help them, that'd be really helpful. So when I think about... What the biggest thing I've learned is you absolutely cannot do it yourself. You just need to empower people. And so if you don't, if you don't build trust and authenticity, so basically what I, so a good example would be during COVID, you know, we went out and said, guys, we need queuing systems. I reckon most other retailers were putting in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of orders for queuing systems. What did our guys do? They went out the back, they got plasma TV boxes, they wrapped them in yellow plastic and set up queuing systems. Mm. Problem solved. You can't teach people that. You you just you have a culture that empowers people to take pride in their store and get the job done. And and I would say when I arrived at, at JB as a 26-year-old CFO, I absolutely didn't appreciate the value of that. And um, you know, Richard, you and Terry absolutely did. Mm. And if there's something I now sit here at 44 understanding, it is crystal clear is it's really not about me. My job is just to enable people, the team to be successful. Um, and if I can get roadblocks out of the way and find the right people, um, that's that's the most important thing because I cannot be everywhere as um, I, you know, sometimes you love to be. But you know, the reality is so if I touch very little in reality, but what I do is I need to make sure the team feels comfortable that we're gonna back them. And if we make, I'd much prefer to be having a go and make a few mistakes than never have tried. Richard Murray, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And that was JB. High fives, Richard Murray. And the next guy needs no introduction at all. It is the one and only Jerry Harvey. Our company was a star, stellar performer on the stock exchange between 1987 and 2000. And we doubled in size every three years. And um, we, we were... We turned a dollar into a hundred dollars in thirteen years. So then we started to consolidate from two thousand onwards. We started to open up in other countries in the world, and now um, when and then we hit the global financial crisis two thousand and eight, nine, ten, and we lost a lot of money in Ireland and things slowed down in Australia. Um, but now we're back on the run again, and. Um, now we've eclipsed anything we've ever done before. And it's not only good in Australia, it's good in the other countries we're in. We're in New Zealand with 40 shops. We're in um, Singapore and Malaysia with about 40 shops. We're in Slovenia and Croatia with half a dozen shops and more opening. We're in Ireland and Northern Ireland. 
opening shops there at the moment. We just opened one in Galway. Um, so we're back on the move again. Uh, we've had the best year we've ever had, and we've gone into July, August with our sales holding up way above last year. So we're looking forward to the next five or ten years as being, you know, like very memorable years for Harvey Norman, a very big growth factor involved. Do you think the share market um, really appreciates your performance, Jerry? No, because it's, it's quite strange because where where we they appreciated us a lot more than they should have um, in years gone by. Now they underappreciate us, and I, I look at our share price and I think it should be seven or eight dollars. And it's four or five dollars, just depending on. And in fact, it dropped to two dollars fifty just a while back with um, with everyone else. Did. So, um, you know, when you look at the earnings per share on Harvey Norman in the top one hundred companies or the top two hundred companies, it's hard to find anyone any better. And and yet we're not priced accordingly. And then we ask ourselves, why is that? And um, it's very hard to answer. It's because, you know, they other retailers are, are priced at a much higher price than we are. And, and it, so it's a bit of a mystery. And, the, and you talk to people that should know, people like yourself or whoever, and and they say, yeah, I, I, I recognise that it is low. You're actually the best value of any share that I can think of. So, But, but they're not buying them. So I think to myself, well, that has to correct itself because sooner or later someone's going to look at it and say, hey, that's all crazy. And the number of shares that change hands on a daily basis with short sellers in and out all the time, some days we have 10, 12, 15 million shares a day change hands. And in the period of a year, um, 1.5 million shares change hands and yet we've only got 500 million shares in the free float. And so you think, this is crazy stuff. People don't buy shares anymore to hold shares for one, two, three, four, five years as a long-term investment. People buy shares to make a quick buck and get out. Or they're gambling day to day. And it's not just the short sellers are gambling. The institutions lend their shares to the short sellers. The institutions gamble. And then you've got all the mums and dads gambling. So the share market's become a, a gambling den. It's a casino. Mm. But, Jerry, do you think part of the aversion um, to buying your stock by, I guess as professionals, I don't think the amateurs are, are against uh, Harvey Norman, but the, the so-called professionals, is, is it ageist, you know, like you're too old, the, the, the business model's old, you know, like Kogan is the new business model. Do you think there's, there's some kind of mistaken belief that, you know, Harvey Norman's past it and maybe you're, you're past it? I think, I think there's good reason to believe I'm past it. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm, 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 I'm just turning 81. Mm. And, um, and so I draw my inspiration from people like Rupert Murdoch, that's nine or 10 years older or something. So, well, Warren Buffett's a bit older than you too, isn't he? Yeah. So Kate then had a meeting with Warren Buffett. It lasted an hour and a half, and he, he, you know, one on one. And uh, she said to Warren, you know, I better, you're a busy man. He said, no, 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 you stick around. I like it. You know? mm. And so then people came, she came out and they said, Kate, you know, people would pay half a million dollars to get a meeting with Warren Buffett for an hour or two. Mm. And um, 
so um, what what came across very simply, he said to her, just tell them all to, he used the word ift, um, <laughs> get them all to get nicked, you know, because, and constantly we're being told by people, just tell them to get ift, right? Yeah. You, you know what you're doing. You own 55% of the company. You're outperforming all your peers. And for some reason, they've got something against you. So don't worry. Who cares? And so it won't make any difference. You'll keep making more money year after year. You'll keep growing your business. And one day they'll say, Jesus, we got that wrong. We backed some of those um, fly-by-nighters, all these people that were going to make a fortune and never did and all went broke. And, and another bloke said to me, you know something? You're one of the only survivors in retail. If you look back in the last 50 or 60 years, I've been doing this for 60 years. Mm. They said, just look back in the last 60 years. And I'll name you thousands that have gone broke, but I'm flat out counting five that have survived. So you're the great survivor. Yeah, that's true. Jerry, and then you see someone else that says, you know, um, it'd be very scary buying Harvey Norman if Jerry Harvey and Katie Page left. They've been there a long time. And then you hear someone say they're too old. And then you hear someone say, um, yeah, but they haven't got enough outside directors on the board. And then you then you hear others say, the good thing about Harvey Norman is half their boards comprises executive directors. So you have all these mixed messages going out. Mm. And, and if you talk to anyone that runs a public company, anyone that developed a company and turned it public, They'll all tell you the same thing. They'll say, you know, your executive directors are the most important part of the company. The least important part is your outside directors. Now, that doesn't mean they're not good people and, and you, they do a good job and all that sort of thing. But if you look at, say, David Jones and Myers, as two big retailers over the years, they ticked every box, every box for the last 30 or 40 years mm. on outside directors, and and all the compliance things, they were the shining example. They, they ended up in a in a terrible place. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the record says that it's all bullshit. Yeah. And I tell you one thing: both those companies did always much better than you. They always did much better ads. They were great quality ads. They were really expensive. And it didn't help them one little bit. Your ads, as you know, star you, and they're really crappy ads, but it's really helped your business, hasn't it? Sure. So, you know, like I, I haven't got an advertising agency. <laughs> we don't pay for it. We know that. Right? We know that. We're here and, and we and see we've your got ads. No talent because it, and why would you pay for no talent? So, but our ads work. Yep. And, and you know, when you look at uh, our sales increases over the last six months, extraordinary. And then it's continued into July and August. How important is the foreign part of the business nowadays? Like, we, we know you're strong in Australia and clearly you have a, a pretty big foothold in New Zealand. But what about the other countries out there? Well, How that's important? Our, that's, our, that's our growth factor over the next five, ten years. We're looking at um, Malaysia as being one of our big growth factors and where we've got maybe four, 35 stores or something like that in 32, three, I can't remember, in, in Malaysia, Singapore, that could be, well, that will be between 50 and 100. 
Uh, we're opening some more stores in in Ireland. Uh, so Ireland's now one of our best performers mm. in terms of percentage increases. Where we were losing a lot of money uh, years ago, we lost over two hundred million there. Um, but now it's making a good profit. So we stuck in for the long haul, and now we're a major player in the Irish market. And Slovenia, uh, I don't think we can grow much there, but we certainly can in Croatia. So we're opening some more shops in Croatia. Mm. Then we're looking at Poland maybe as our next country that we might go to. So if we can build our company in those foreign markets and somehow over over the years get it up to 30 40 50% of our total profit that's our aim mm. and and if we do that and then we're talking about trying to get to a billion a year profit um so we're we're well on the way and you talk about any other retailer in Australia having more potential than Harvey Norman I I dispute that well, what, what do you what do you spirit, what, What's your strength? Let's let's like, aim it up. It's you versus JB Hi-Fi. JB Hi-Fi is the darling of the the market. You're often, I think, mistreated, and, and you definitely think you're mistreated by the market. What's your strength? You think compared to uh, JB Hi-Fi? Oh, we've got a lot more strength. No mm. comparison. JB Hi-Fi is an Australian company that does very well. It, it's in shopping centres with the JB Hi-Fi shops and they've got good good guy shops outside of shopping centres and they do a good job, no question about it. Uh, we made a profit after tax 40% higher than them. Uh, our potential is is all across the world and they sell, they only sell electronics. Uh, you know, we sell um, furniture, bedding, carpet, home improvement. So, you know, we've got a a much bigger profit potential mm. uh, to grow our business than, than what they have. Not, that's not saying anything bad against them. They're good. Yeah. But the fact is that we make 40% more profit than they do, and we've got a lot more potential. So, But what happens is that people run through sweet spots where you're the darling of the moment. The danger is when you're the darling of the moment, that it never lasts. It's it's like it never lasts. Every company that I've ever seen is the darling at the moment. Later on, they're not. And so everyone has their turn. I breed racehorses. And, you know, I haven't got a good horse at the moment, but the bloke down the road has. Next year, I'll have the good horse because my turn will come. Mm. So you've just got to... You've got, you're in the cycle. You do the best you can. And then one day you wake up and everyone says you're the darling. And you think, how did they work that out? I hope I'm alive to see that one day, Jerry. Now, look, look, a couple of questions before we go. Your online performance, because, you know, online performance have done very well with the lockdown. How, yep. have, you, how have you done? Have you actually grown and improved your oh, online offering? Yes, like doubled and tripled in lots of places. Mm. So I don't put it out like all the others are putting out their online sales, but if I put mine out, I'd put them to shame. But you're, so, you're, bi- you're bigger online than than the others. Oh, bigger than bigger than most of them, because we we we've got our online business in 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 every shop, and 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 we've got a big a big a huge number of people employed in online, and online's going through the roof. But I don't go out um, 
you know, talking a lot about online because it's not our big profit earner. Our big profit earner is in the shops. So to, to give you some idea, um, let's say a shop was writing $100 a week, of which 5 to $10 is online. Then the shop closes, which they did all across the world. Then the shop, instead of writing $100 a week, writes, say, 50 or $60 a week, and it's all online. No, no one in the shop. So then the shop reopens. Because it's been closed for a while, you get a surge in sales. So instead of writing $100 a week, you write $150 a week. But the online then drops back to $10. Hmm. So then you say to yourself, well, doesn't that conclusively prove that the online staying where it is basically, growing a little bit, but as soon as you open the shop, the shop goes up 50%. And the online drops way back. So we've got proof of that in every shop we've closed, every shop in every country in the world. That's what's happened. But that never gets printed. So they print all this other stuff about how great online is in the pandemic. Of course it is. Ours is great. Everyone's is great. Can't be anything else. So it's gone up 100%. Ah, that's the future. No one's ever going to go into a shop again. We've proved conclusively that that is absolute bullshit. Okay, let's go to the next one big issue which you would have an opinion on, and that is afterpay. Now, you know, you, you do like to invest in the stock market. Uh, do, does your company work with afterpay? And if so, what do you think the future of this company or Zip or, or, or the others in the market, Jerry? Well, the market thinks that they're the darling. And, and, and like, I don't think they're bad businesses. I'm just jealous I didn't think of it instead of them. <laughs> so uh, you and I should have done it, or, or, yeah. or better still, me without you. <laughs> um, so You've always I been very, an unselfish guy. That's, uh, that's, yeah, you've yeah, got this yeah, one tight you know, now. You, you, pre- you pretend to share, Peter, but you really don't. You know? <laughs> so. But what do you think of their businesses, Jerry? Like, are you using Afterpay or Zip or both in your business? No, we use Latitude mm. instead of them. That doesn't mean we won't use them at some stage in the future. We haven't got any reason not to. We, we, we're, we're just we just think they're extraordinary that mm. you can be worth five billion, let alone ten, let alone twenty, or whatever Afterpay goes to. So it's beyond comprehension. And and so if it ever gets there, that's great. Uh, I wasn't game to buy shares in them when they're only worth one billion. Mm. So for when they're worth ten billion I I I'm not gonna buy a share, but I should have because then they were twenty billion. Yeah. And, and and you look at it and you think, This is impossible. But it is. And and so um, I I gobsmacked mm. as, to, to, as to what's happened uh, and, and good luck to the guys that pulled it off, Zip and Afterpay and some others. So um, everyone in the market's like, but the danger is when you buy shares like that, and I can give you 50 stocks if you like across the world and so can you, um, where you buy shares and you see the things go through the roof. And then all the pundits get in and the gamblers get in and they buy. But that share that goes from naught to $20 very quickly often comes back to $1. Mm. 
and then everything goes. You've lost a lot. The great advantage Harvey Norman's got is that we've got three and a half billion in net assets. And a big percentage of our opposition have got somewhere between naught and naught in their assets. Mm. And so there's a huge difference. So we, we when when the recession, depression or whatever, if and when it ever comes, we're in a very strong position. And now we have no debt, zero debt. This time last year we owed six or seven hundred million. Mm. And now we owe nothing. So now I've got people ringing me and saying, you've got a lazy balance sheet, <laughs> right? Yeah. You've got to do something about that. The, the price of money is so cheap you can go out there and, and borrow way under 2%. In your case, we can borrow way under 2%, 1.5%. But others, not most others can't. But we can, we can borrow at that price because we've got all the assets to back it. So at the moment, I could go out and borrow a billion, maybe two billion. And I could go out and buy this, that, and the next thing. Um, buy a heap of shares and put a billion dollars into afterpay. It doubles in profit and I'll make a quick billion. Then I'll be a genius. All right. Get, let's get off you to being a genius and finish up on one. I like being a genius. Yeah, I know. Well, that, well, in fact, this question is related to your business genius because there are people out there now, Jerry, who would be struggling. Like imagine you've got a, a very successful cafe in the CBD of Sydney and no one's going back to work because the, you know, the big offices out there are scared to, to come back to work. Yet they, yet their employees find time to go into your shops on the weekend. They're not, they're not afraid of doing that. Jerry, what advice would you give someone who's currently you know, really struggling with a good business, but this temporary problem they've got really makes them feel, you know, negative and and doubtful about the future? What would you say to someone like that? I, I'd just say, mate, best advice I can give you is cash in and buy Harvey Norman shares. No, oh, you. Rotten, so and so. You're as bad as the people are criticising you. Come on, you've, you've been you've been through some tough times in retail. It must have been times when you thought you you might go to the wall. What would you really tell someone like that? Well, the the best thing you can do if if you know that you're not going to make it, give up. Mm. But if you think there's a chance, there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep going, and 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 believe in yourself. And and then when the tide turns. Suddenly there's a vaccine, everyone's back in the city and your business is good again and you can look back in the years to come and you can think, geez, I went close. And, but I stayed in. It's a bit like us when, when the GFC hit Ireland and in one year we lost the first year 50 million. The next year we lost another 50 million. Then we followed that up and lost 100 million. But we said, no, we're not going. We're going to stay here because sooner or later, we're going to tell everyone and show everyone we're the best retailer in Ireland. Now, it took us 10 years, right? It took us 10 years of pain and a hiding every day. But now, you look at what we're doing in Ireland, and you think, wow, those buggers deserve it because they stayed in there. They fought like buggery. And now they're doing really well and they're looking at profit increases this year that are way above last year. So the thing is, but if you've got no chance, if you've got, you can't, it came from their field, it got you. That, mm. that guy in the city with his, um, with his cafe or restaurant or whatever he's got, it's not his fault. 
The thing came from left field. Mm. It's like a bloody volcano erupting or an earthquake. And and it, and it, a good model goes straight out the window because someone from someone intervened that should never have intervened or something. So, um, but if if there's a bit of light at the end, work twice as hard. Just work twice as hard. All right. Now, It'll turn around. It'll turn around. Well, Jerry, probably the, the best um, business or best uh, thing you ever invested in was your wife, Katie, of course. We all know that. Without her, you'd be no one. Even she knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Harvey, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>